Health Hour on cliffcentral.com. Well, it's a very good morning um, on this cold, gloomy morning. Uh, my name is Dr. Cindy Siwe Fansale. You can follow me on Twitter at DocCindy, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I. And this morning I have a fantastic guest in the show. Her name is um, Professor Alison Bentley, and she's a sleep professor. So just to give you a bl- bit of background, I met Alison a few, I think just two years ago. She was giving a talk about um, torture and how doctors... Played a very big role in torture because I mean they needed they they, had, they needed to, to to work hard enough to keep the patients alive, but ensure that you know patients the information that was needed from from those patients also came out. So anyway, she'll explain all of that. Anyway, I met her at that um, event, and the reason why I, I I specifically waited to speak to her is because I'm one of those weird people, and she diagnosed me, and I was really happy to get a diagnosis. But I'm a natural short sleeper, so basically I'm one of those people that only needs like four hours of sleep a day. And then I'm awake and I'm working and nothing happens. I, I can I can have a full productive day on four hours of sleep. And then once a month, I have a catch-up sleep where I sleep for like six hours, almost like a recharge of batteries. And that is how I got to meet Professor Allison. So I'm so happy to have you in studio, Prof. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a great pleasure. So just a bit of background. Um, how did you get into into um you know the specific field of sleep? Where did that where did that interest come from? Okay, it, it was never really an interest. So I went to physiology. I was yeah. going to do surgery. So I went to physiology as a what we used to be called a table doctor. Mm-hmm. You go for a year, learn physiology, teach physiology, and write the surgical exams. So I went and did that for a year, wrote the surgical exams, passed the surgical exams, and then went, no, nah, no, don't feel like doing that anymore. And so I decided to stay in physiology. And if you stay in an academic department, you kind of have to be in one of the research areas. So one of the research areas was hypertension, and the other one was the brain function research group, which at that stage really dealt with animals. Okay. So I was a bit stuck because I didn't really want to do animal research. And really, I would have done anything to get out of hypertension, anything. So when one of the profs came and said, hey, we're starting the sleep lab. Would you like to get involved in this? I said, I know nothing about sleep. He said, hey, none of us do. And anyway, I went, will it get me out of hypertension? He said, yes, I go on in. <laughs> That's literally But then when I started And I mean this was you know mid 80s So when I started reading about sleep And there wasn't much And there wasn't an internet to understand So yeah. it was books and stuff like that When I started reading about it It was so interesting And it's and it's continued to be interesting for me I've never ever had a point where I've gone Meh, done with sleep mm-hmm. Not interested in it at all So it's it's really nice to be in a field that that you find interesting and um, everything that you read about it, you go, oh my goodness, that's amazing. It is so, amazing. I, yeah, mean, I know with me, the moment you told me that I was a natural short sleeper, it's as if I had the answer to life. Everything made sense. Mm. And the fact that it was um, something that I'd inherited from my parents, because my dad and I SMS each other at two o'clock in the morning. Mm. He goes to bed at about, what? I don't even think he sleeps before midnight. But if he does, he sleeps for a very short amount of time. Then he's awake and he's working and he's productive. Yep. Very, very productive. Yeah. So I was just so glad to, to know that, A, I am normal. There's nothing wrong with mm. me. And there are lots of people out there just like me. Mm. No, I think that's important. And I think, uh, you know, if you lose your sleep and, and, and what's interesting is when you have people who sleep well, mm. do not understand how anybody cannot sleep well. It's just one of those things people go, I don't understand how you don't sleep. Like it's so easy. You just lie down, close your eyes, boof, you're gone. And yeah, that's, that's as easy as it is to fall asleep. But if you have any anxiety at all about that process of falling asleep or any feeling that you might not be able to do it, it just goes. So one of the one of the big profs in in America spoke about sleep as being like sitting in a park bench and having a bird sit on the 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 arm of the bench next to you. Mm-hmm. And as long as you do nothing, the bird stays. I.e., falling asleep happens if you do nothing. But the second you try to engage with it, the bird flies away. Wow. So the second you try to engage with sleep and try to make it happen or be in charge of it, or it's gone. Poof, just like and you that. just can't fall asleep. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's and, very interesting. And, I mean, one of the questions that I know you said, you know, you get asked a lot, is around dreams. I mean, do people actually think that you interpret dreams when you tell them that you work with sleep? Mm. Oh yeah, no, I've been asked to do radio programs on interpreting dreams and things like that, and I go, no, I don't do that because for me, dreams are are, are a kind of a functional thing. They're not this big prophetic thing. And I mean, I understand that dreams are prophetic and I do understand that people, some people do get prophetic dreams and that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. But I think what's, what's interesting for me is one of the people who deals with dream analysis and, and deals with this whole prophetic dream thing says, yeah, so one of your dreams came true. How many didn't? 
Mm. Yeah, and you can't just pick up on the one dream that came true and go, you see, I have prophetic dreams. Mm. Um, and, and dis- disregard the nine or ten that didn't happen. Because bottom line is if, if, if your dreams came true, the world would be an incredibly bizarre place. Because bizarre dreams happen, mm. you know things are bizarre in dreams, and no, that's they okay. Really are. They are, yeah, you know. And why do dreams happen, though? I think that's that's what a lot of people want. Well, to know. I mean, for me, and I mean, this is a personal opinion, so don't don't hold me to this. Mm. But for me, it's very much we know that the, that a lot of the function of sleep is about your memory banks, is that you are consolidating memory. So you kind of put stuff into memory when you're awake. Um, and you can only recall it when you're awake, but kind of consolidating it and making sure that it's there. Um, happens during sleep. So sleep's incredibly important for that memory process. And when you put a memory into a bank of current memories, you kind of need to open up those banks and see what's there and kind of where it needs to go and organize the memories so that, you know, there's this whole thing about memories associations that you have a, to have a memory, you kind of associate it with something else. Well, then that only happens if you kind of find that in your memory bank and put the two together, okay. kind of link the two together. So, I mean, I also, you know, lecture on neurophysiology and how memories work and it's all about chemicals. It's, it's, so it's a very mysterious process, mm. but the, a lot of this happens during sleep. So for me, dreams are kind of opening up all these folders and opening these files and going, where does this memory fit? And oh my goodness, that's so interesting. And very much like you would during the day create. Word files, Excel files, and leave them all on your desktop. And then at night you go, now they all need to be put away. Mm. And go back into your computer. You need to open folders, see what's there. Does it fit here? Not really. Open another folder. That's, it fits better there. So for me, that's what dreaming's, dreaming is about. And so I don't get worried about the dreams. Um, I, I think that also that if dreams were so important, why don't we remember them? I don't ever remember my dreams. So we all dream. But yeah, we all dream. So, but waking up and not remembering them doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. If you look at the math, 20% of your night is going to be REM sleep. That's mm. where our very vivid visual dreams happen. And REM being rapid eye movement. Yeah, rapid eye movement sleep. So 20% of your night, so let's say eight hours, 20% of that is about an hour and a half, is REM sleep. And we have good evidence that for 80% of that time, you're going to be dreaming. Mm. Now, the only time you know that you're dreaming is that you wake up in a dream. Okay. And then you have back memory of about 30 seconds. Mm. That, so you only remember what you're dreaming at the time, not what happened five minutes ago. So you're dreaming for maybe an hour a night and you don't remember most, most of that of hour. Okay. So, yeah, you know, I, I, Used to say, you know, if my, if the dreaming is all about your subconscious talking to your conscience, my subconscious is doing a hell of a bad job. <laughs> Just really a bad job because I'm, I don't remember dreams at all. And good sleepers don't. Mm. And, um, sleeping tablets, Alison, let's talk a bit about that. Yeah. Because I mean, I went through a phase when I was going through my major depression where I couldn't sleep without, without yeah. taking an urbanol. And now I'm fine. Now yep. I'm okay. Let's talk about sleeping tablets. Yeah, so sleeping tablets are amazing drugs. They really are. They do an incredibly good job. Their job is to to depress the brain so that you fall asleep. And it kind of does the same job as alcohol and the same job as anesthetics, but a lot safer than both of those, actually. So remember I said that if you think about falling asleep too much, that you actually can't do it, that you actually kind of psych yourself out of falling asleep. Um, And that's an incredibly powerful thing. And it can go – it can – Maintain a sleep problem for years mm. And if you have somebody and, and people always say But sleeping tablets are such a bad thing Because they well, don't give you so a natural sleep And rightly so But here's the deal You know, if you have insomnia You are destroyed Yeah. Bottom line Is the next day you cannot function It gets to a point where As soon as the sun goes down You start getting anxious about sleeping You start changing your entire nighttime activities So that they are focused towards sleep So what that means is We have dinner then we start our lavender baths. Then we have our chamomile tea. Then we do our relaxation exercises. And the candles. And, and the everything. Sheep. Yeah. And everything is focused towards going to sleep. But what happens is all of that actually makes it worse. It doesn't actually help you fall asleep. You tend to go to bed earlier, which in itself makes you, makes it harder to fall asleep. So if you have insomnia and you have really good going insomnia, you are going to feel awful every day. Now, you're not able to function properly. You are at a risk to all of us because basically you are driving and you are operating machinery, i.e. a car, when you haven't slept well. So the way that the brain works is if you haven't had enough sleep, it is constantly on the look for times when it can get sleep. It's a biological need. So if you're sitting in a car in traffic and you just relax for a moment, there's a good chance you can fall asleep. 
So you're at a risk to all of us because you're not actually sleeping enough. You're not, you're not functioning well. You are horrible during the day. You don't function well at work. So taking a sleeping tablet, what that does is two things. Firstly, it works at a biological level, no question. Mm-hmm. But it also takes a massive stress off the person who takes the tablet. Mm-hmm. So if you take the tablet, very often what happens in the head of the insomniac is, I don't need to try because the, the, the tablet will do its job. What very often happens is the brain goes, thank heavens you've stopped trying now because actually now I can fall asleep because mm-hmm. actually all that trying Was is not tearing. helping. Yeah, yeah, it's actually making it worse. And so very often people will say, I take my sleeping tablet at 10 and I'm asleep by 10 past 10. Well, here's the good news. No tablets that fast. <laughs> it just ain't. But the fact that you've stopped worrying about falling asleep means it's much easier to fall asleep. Mm. So is it better than not taking a sleeping tablet? It depends where you're at. So if you if your insomnia is so bad that you are getting three hours of sleep a night and you're not functioning during the day, a sleeping tablet's better. Yeah, and that's really important. That. I think that's the distinction yeah. between insomniacs and natural short sleepers. Yeah. So naturally short sleepers get three hours like you do, or four hours of sleep, and they function fine yeah. the next day. And and for an insomniac, that is always the first question that I ask is how do you function during the day? Yeah. Is there a mismatch between what you think you need to sleep and you're currently sleeping and how you're functioning. Because mm. people, you know, people say, oh, I have to get like eight hours of sleep and I'm only getting four. And I go, how are you functioning during the day? Are you sleepy during the day? And they go, not really. You know, I'm fatigued, but I'm not really sleepy. I go, you know, if you're getting half the amount of sleep you should get, you should be devastated. Mm. And you should be falling asleep every time you go into a meeting, sitting still, leaning back mm. in your chair. You should be falling asleep. Um, and so maybe there's a mismatch between how much you think you need to sleep and how you function during the day and how much sleep you're getting. And you need to look at those three kind of components to it. That's important. Yeah. I mean, I know with me, um, as, you, as, I, as I've said to many people before, four hours and I'm fine. It doesn't matter what I've done the night before. It doesn't matter with how long I was out. Even if I get home at one o'clock in the morning, four hours later, I'm awake. Yep. That's just my pattern. Yep. And then once a month, I have this long six hours sleep. And then I'm, no, look, six like hours isn't long. Hey? <laughs> well, for me, just it's very really long. <laughs> it's like a recharge of batteries And does, does your sleep pattern change as you grow older? Yeah, it does, all the time I mean, people, you know, we accept that babies kind of have 14 hours of sleep And that kind of gets down to adults 6, 7 hours So it halves by the time you're an adult So in 20 years it halves Okay. But everybody thinks that that's where it stops And that you should be able to then have that 7 hours for the rest of your life But that's not what happens It continues to change mm. And it continues to drop down And sometimes quite precipitously so it can go from seven hours of sleep to suddenly down to six. And what often happens is people are in a routine um, and they go to bed at 10 o'clock and they get up at six o'clock and they get their eight hours and they maintain that routine. And all of a sudden they can't fall asleep at, eight, at 10 o'clock or they're waking up in the middle of the night, which they haven't done before. And they suddenly go, oh, my, I've got insomnia. Okay? Mm. And I'm kind of going, well, the first thing you need to check is that your sleep requirements haven't changed. So cut it down by an hour and see what happens. And very often they go, oh, no, it's fine now. Right. So our sleep requirements can continue to decrease until we're older. Okay. Having said that, there are plenty of elderly people who sleep eight hours or nine hours a day. So it's not that it's an absolute. Um, there, there are some people that get shorter. My sleep has got shorter as I've got older. And how many hours are you averaging per night now? It depends. I mean, you know, I can get seven hours a night easily, easily, but, um, there are nights that I don't and, and it happens. When I'm working and I'll be working and I'll carry on working and all of a sudden I go, oh my goodness, it's half past 11 or 12 o'clock at night and I go, I'm in trouble. I'm not going to go to sleep and I, and I can get four and a half hours that night. And then, the, and I used to panic about it and I go, oh my word, how am I going to cope? And then I actually discovered that I coped fine mm. that next night, that next day. Um, and right through the next evening and at 10 o'clock, half past 10, I'll go to bed. Half past 10, I realize that I'm actually sitting watching TV because I'm too tired to go to bed. And I go, this is ridiculous, go to bed. And then I'll sleep eight hours. So I'll catch up an hour. So I think I could get, I think I could get by on six and a half easily mm. every night. Um, I just, um, I, and I used to laugh at people who, I used to have patients who said, you know, I have to fall asleep before midnight because if I go after midnight, I'm not going to fall asleep. I used to laugh at them. Oh, that's true. Really? <laughs> it happens to me as well. If I push it, so that's why I kind of go to bed at half past 10, 10, half past 10 to 11, half past 11, somewhere around that kind of time. Because, yeah, if I push through till 12 o'clock, I'm wide awake. And that's when I get my four and a half hours. Oh, okay. Which I know I can't have every night. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And what me. about sleepwalking, Alison? I've always been interested in sleepwalking. Mm. So sleepwalking is a familial thing. 
And oh. um, yeah, yeah, no, no, you got it from someone in your family, so it's never your fault. Let's oh, always okay. go with that. That's interesting. <laughs> no, it's someone in your family, and. What it is, is, is when we come out of our not REM sleep, the other type of sleep is slow wave sleep. Okay. Um, and it's a very deep sleep and it's the sleep we kind of get first in the night. Oh. Um, and we think it's the physical restorative sleep. That's when all your growth hormone is, is secreted. So as an adult, we don't grow, but we repair. So, okay. so that's, that's what the growth hormone's about. And, um, when you come out of that very deep, um, level of sleep, you should come from what's called stage four. You cut stage four to stage three to stage two to stage one. You should kind of gradually come out of sleep. If you're prone to sleepwalking and you come out of stage four directly to being awake, so you miss that kind of gradual kind of step up and you come and you can, I mean, you can instigate sleepwalking in people who are prone to it. You wait till they're very fast asleep and then wake them up. And, um, you can kind of trigger it if you like. So they, they kind of wake up, but they don't wake up completely. So they get mm. caught in like a twilight zone where there are features of being asleep and features of being awake together. The feature of being asleep is they're asleep. There's no question they're asleep. The fe- features of being awake, walking around, peeing Doing in, stuff though. Yeah, peeing in the corner, <laughs> eating, um, driving cars. Um, doing stuff, yeah, as if they're awake. Yeah. Yeah. And often looking as though they're awake because their eyes are open. Um, but they're not, they're asleep. And so they are prone to get, have accidents. And we, and I've seen people with major, major injuries happening because of sleepwalking. Oh my word. Yeah. Pe- you can't wander out of your house in the middle of the night and cross a road, you know, while you're sleepwalking. Cause, um, yeah. And what's the remedy for sleepwalking? How do you? Well, there is no remedy. Okay. This is this thing. It's, it's a genetic it's thing. A genetic but what thing. we do know is that in children under the age of 11, the prevalence is about 10% of children. Yeah. But after puberty, it's about three. So okay. it drops quite precipitously. And what we would worry about is if somebody used to sleepwalk as a, as a child, hasn't sleepwalked for ages and suddenly starts again. What would that signify? Well, we'd see, we'd look at something that's actually waking them up during the night. And then we'd look at the organic sleep disorders like sleep apnea, periodic limb movements, anything that's, that's causing awakenings during the night. Because as I said, if, if something is causing an awakening during that deep stage of sleep, they're going to, they're going to sleepwalk because they're just prone to it. Okay. And sleep talking? I, cause I same thing. So the same thing. It's the same kind of thing. It's just a different expression. So if, if mm. you, if you get a twilight zone and you can do all kinds of things in there. So you can sleep eat. So sleep eating is a syndrome. Sleep talking, sleep walking. There's also sleep sex. Please don't ask me about that. <laughs> there's, <laughs> so there's various kind of things that can happen and they all get back to the same kind of thing. It's just about how you express it. Mm. Yeah, as an individual. That's very interesting. So we got a message from Ernest. So Ernest says that he's a student and he doesn't necessarily have a sleeping pattern, but sometimes when he sleeps, okay, so he sleeps when he's tired and the next day, um, you know, he's, he gets a bit sleepy during class. So what do you recommend for him? Because sometimes he can't function. So this sounds like an insomniac situation, occasional insomniac situation. Yeah. Occasional insomniac. Uh, Well, that's what it sounds like to me. I mean, you know, he's a student. I think that's a, that's the big thing. So maybe he spends hours at night studying, you know, Mm. well into the night. What do you recommend for students? The thing about students and particularly male students is that they need to be really careful about studying late at night. Really? Why particularly male students? Well, because it's really easy. Well, at about 15 years old, I don't know anybody who's listening who has a teenage boy and just will understand this problem. Okay. At about 15 years old, aliens come and take over your, your son's brain and move him to a different time zone. So they, and it happens in girls, but really not as, as significant. You see it in boys particularly. Okay. So they find it difficult to go to sleep at the usual time, 10, half past 10, whatever mm-hmm. that kind of time is. They find it difficult to go to sleep and find it difficult to wake up in the morning. So what happens is their whole, their sleep is normal. So the phase, the normal, the phase is out. So what we call the phase, which is basically they get a little jet lag. Oh, I see. So they moved kind of two hours out of sync with South African time. Kind of they're in the middle of the Atlantic pretty much as a time zone. So what it means is they can only fall asleep at one o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. but then they need to get up at nine, obviously. And school starts at eight. So they are cutting short their sleep, but then they go, well, tomorrow, tomorrow night I'll sleep better because I've slept less this, this night. But the next night, because their whole melatonin circadian rhythm is out of sync, they still can't go to bed early. So they need to be careful because you can push it right out. So. How extreme does it get? I got a, a student come to see me after he'd finished engineering. Yeah. So the last six months of engineering at WITS anyway is projects. You don't, there are no lectures. You've no obligation to go anywhere. You just sit and work on your projects. 
And he'd always been, had a tendency to go to bed late and, and wake up late. Yeah. And he came to see me because he's now got a job because I'd finished. He got a job that started at eight. So I said to him, what time are you going to sleep? He goes, 5 a.m. So he was going to sleep at, so he gradually pushed it through the six months and he was going to sleep at 5 a.m. and waking up at 12. Now, you know, there's no company on earth that starts at one o'clock in the afternoon. So he needed to get back into the proper circadian rhythm. So what I mean, so as a male student, and that's why I'm picking up on it because they tend to push through at night and they can push their sleep pattern out. So how do you find this? You ask people how they sleep on the weekends and holidays. Oh, okay. And they go, oh, weekends. Well, I go out partying and I get home at two and then I sleep until 10. And they sleep perfectly normally. So I, they don't really have insomnia as such. It presents as insomnia because of the structure that we have. Oh, I see. The social structure, if you like, that they have to wake up at half past six or seven. Okay. When they're actually designed to wake up at 10. Oh, okay. Well, we had a caller, but I mean, we'll get him back just now and, and hear mm. what he wanted to ask. Um, and just before, you know, just before we, we, you know, we, we go for a break, I wanted to ask about kids sleeping patterns because I spend a lot of time fielding questions from mothers who mm. write that their babies don't sleep, like newborns. Yeah. And I don't know where this myth or the story comes from that newborns sleep through the night. We sleep through the night, through no. the night, but newborns don't. No, they don't. And they only start sleeping through between three and four months of age. Mm. Or later for some, for some babies. Yeah. Well, so the deal, the deal with, with, with newborn babies is that they, they don't have a circadian rhythm. So they, exactly. they go. Exactly. And, and I think that's yeah. so important for people to understand this. Yeah. That's, they, yeah, yeah. That circadian rhythm only comes in at three to four months of age. And when, when the circadian rhythm comes in, the gut rests at night. And so babies don't need to be fed for nutritional purposes. And so gradually by six months, they kind of should be sleeping through the night. That's mm. how the ideal kind of pattern would work. There are many reasons why that doesn't happen mm. and, and babies continue not sleeping. But the reason why they continue not sleeping after that is because they have linked not falling asleep with something else. And that's usually something to suck or someone to touch. Exactly. <laughs> and they've linked the two and it's their fault. They linked the two in their heads. Okay. Um, and that's the reason why they continue. But bottom line is, Babies who are normal, developing normally, eating normally, everything is normal, are physically capable of sleeping through the night at six months. Yeah, and and this is where sleep training comes into it. I think the hardest yeah. thing for me when I was sleep training my kids is what you're saying, whether that when they're screaming at midnight and so on, the urge not to get up and pick them up or touch mm. them. That, that that is the hardest thing. Oh, you see, fight. I don't leave them to scream, right? So when I see moms with babies who don't do babies who don't sleep, I don't leave them to scream. I couldn't do it. So my daughter had colic and she. Um, she couldn't sleep and I said it was just when the the kind of controlled crying thing came out and I went okay well this is simple I can do this I'm the sleep expert (laughs) what could this be (laughs) and I lasted like three minutes with her and I remember saying to my husband I don't care what we have to do but I can't do this and you know from that minute on I actually could not actually tell another mother to do it really no it felt like such a hypocrite like how could you tell a parent to do this when you could not do it yourself well you know what Alison I use my kids as guinea pigs and I trust uh, trust me I said to most moms I timed it I timed the, the the crying and the longest that my babies well yeah Nandi the longest was seven minutes and I think Marnie was nine minutes and they fell asleep straight after that but how old were they Three, four months. Okay, that's different. Mm. So if you have a sleep problem that continues past nine months Mm. and those children can stand up, they can keep going for an hour and a half. Okay, and that's that's a huge, huge difference. So, yes, if you're going to do controlled crying and mm. sleep training, it has it's got to gotta be between four and six months. Oh, absolutely. It has to be early. And, and, and Basically, yes. before they can even physically stand up, it's got to be during that period. But once you're past that, no, you can't do it. You literally can't do it. Those babies will find a way to throw themselves around the cot, vomit, get out of the cot because they are that desperate for help. Yeah. They really are stuck. They're in a situation that they can't deal with. They don't know how to fall asleep. If they knew how to fall asleep, they would be asleep. Mm. And um, they're desperate. So they will do any trick that they can think of to get you back in that room to help them. Mm. And just another question from Pirate Mike. He wants to know if you've ever heard of any cases of sleep murder people committing murder in their sleep. Yep, there's been uh, there's been a couple of cases internationally, not in South Africa. Okay. A couple of cases internationally where it was proved um that well there was a guy the one that everybody knows about in the sleep field anyway is a young guy who got up at night. He was a sleepwalker. Everyone knew he was a sleepwalker. He got up at night, got into his car, drove to his parents-in-law house, walked up the stairs and killed his mom-in-law. And his father-in-law witnessed the whole thing and and tried to stop him, but he said he he could not. 
he could not stop him. He said he was, he knew he was asleep. He knew he didn't mean it. And, and the bottom line was he had no gripe with his mother-in-law at all. It wasn't like, I hate my mother-in-law. Let's use this as a big excuse, which people have tried. Let's be honest. They've, they've tried that. But the, the, the whole circumstances around that was the fact that, that he didn't, he didn't, he had no intention of doing it. He had never verbalized the fact that he hated his mother-in-law. His father-in-law watched the whole thing and said, I knew that he didn't actually mean to do this. So yeah, it has happened. And that's how extreme sleepwalking can get. So if you are, if you are a sleepwalker, so, you know, I often get to see people when they're going away to varsity and they're sleepwalkers and they go, how do I do this? So the only way to, to prevent a sleepwalk is trying to wake them up. So we kind of, you've got to alarm the place. You have to make sure that, the, you know, so the wet tile on the floor sometimes works as they fling their feet out. They hit water, water. and they hit cold and that kind of tends to wake them up a bit. Um, you've got to lock doors. They have to lock doors, you know, whereas people go, well, we don't have to lock our doors. Yes, you do. You have to put baby gates on so they can't get downstairs. Steve. You have to hide keys often because they find keys to, to outside. So you have to do everything you can to protect that person from okay. hurting themselves. And did he go to jail, Alison? He didn't. No, okay, because so. the father-in-law actually spoke on his, in his defense. Okay. And the father-in-law said there was no question he didn't mean to do this. He knows that. So he didn't actually go to jail. Yes, he was, he was, he was found guilty of culpable homicide because you, you have to be, right? But, um, there was no jail sentence, um, because I think the father-in-law spoke in mitigation. Okay. Yeah, he was a young father. Well, that's, that's, that's rough, that's but it really does get rough. that bad. Yeah. I've had people who've stuck their hands through plate glass windows and lost fingers and, you know, so it's not, a, it's not a, an inconsequential thing. You shouldn't just go, my sleepwalking's just fun. Mm. No, it can be quite serious. Well, this is very insightful. We'll be back after this. Sir Richard Branson had a game changing idea. He made it happen. You have a game changing idea. And now Sir Richard wants to discuss it with you aboard the Virgin Atlantic 787 Dreamliner. Presenting Dream Trapreneur. Email dream at cliffcentral.com with your one-minute video or audio recorded business plan. If our panel of judges think it's a game changer, you'll be one of ten to attend a course at the Joburg Branson Center of Entrepreneurship. Then, two final winners will take home 40,000 Rand in cash, 140,000 Rand's digital marketing package, one week in London attending Global Entrepreneurship Week, and time with Sir Richard Branson aboard the Virgin Atlantic 787 Dreamliner. An idea is only ever an idea until you make it happen. T's and C's apply. Go to cliffcentral.com for more info. Are you South Africa's next dream entrepreneur? Health Hour on cliffcentral.com. Well, Alison, I'm back to um, where I first met you. So I first met you at Wits University and you'd given a talk on um, sleep deprivation being used as a form of torture. Mm. So let's speak a bit about that. Oh yeah, it's it's been known for many many years, and it was you. It's been used very effectively for torture. So here's what happens: if you keep somebody awake, there's this biological desperate need to fall asleep, mm. and psychologically, I mean, everybody who hasn't slept well knows that psychologically, the next day you're a bit grumpy and you're not great. But if you know that you've got a good night's sleep coming, you can kind of withstand that but if you don't sleep the next night it just builds and it builds and it, it's particularly bad if somebody is inflicting that on you so the very first um, court case that I was involved with and this was in the 80s I yeah. think um, was when um, I was asked to to for the defense to talk about sleep deprivation and it was a case where the police had kept somebody awake for 56 hours I think it was at the time 56, 56 hours. hours. And after 56 hours, this guy confessed that he owned arms and he was a member of the ANC. So this was before 1990. And he was a member of the ANC. So, and I had to go to court to explain what would happen after 56 hours of sleep deprivation. And that's where I first got interested in the topic. Because when you start reading this, you go, oh my goodness, this is insane. So 56 hours, I mean, you are, you will literally do anything to get your sleep back. Yeah. You get put into that zone where you will do anything and you will almost commit a crime to get sleep. It's that there's, there's such a push to get sleep that, that the longer it carries on for, the worse 
the, at worst gets. Now, the, now why sleep deprivation has been used so, so much for for torture is it's incredibly easy to do. Sure. I mean, all you have to do, so you can either do total sleep deprivation where you literally keep people awake or you do what's called sleep fragmentation. Yeah. So sleep fragmentation is you just have a siren that goes off kind of every five minutes. We'll just take a call from mm. John and then we'll get sure. back to this. Um, hi, John. Hi. Hi. You. Hi, I just want to check with the professor. I uh, have so many questions about how we, if we go to bed, we have our cell phones in our bed and we check Facebook, we check Twitter, etc. Um, and I hear that that's also disruptive to our sleep. Is that true? Or can we still check Twitter and Facebook before going to sleep? <laughs> I understand the, the importance of this of this information. The the um, the important thing about about devices is that because it's because of the light. So it's because of direct light in your eyes, and that's got to do with melatonin. So the deal with it is, is that if the, and the only thing it will affect is your onset of sleep. It's not once you're asleep, it's not going to affect your sleep. So if you can catch up on Facebook and Twitter and all those kind of things at night before you go to sleep, fall asleep perfectly okay. Then that's then then you're okay. But the the thing about light is what light does is it pushes melatonin out of sync. So if you're exposed to a lot of light at night, it can move your melatonin later, and then you get that delayed sleep phase that I was talking about. So when you switch off the devices, only then can the melatonin come up. But it doesn't happen in everybody, and it doesn't. It's not as as huge as people talk about it. But if you if you do have insomnia, then you need to stop using devices. Do everything else that you need to do to correct the insomnia as well. So that's in itself is not going to fix it. And that includes, as we've spoken about, sleep restriction, reducing your sleep a little bit, not spending a whole bunch of time lying in bed trying to fall asleep. So when I treat insomniacs, I do take away all devices for at least two hours before they're going to go to sleep, fix the insomnia. And then we say, well, put the devices back and see what happens. Um, and if you suddenly, if your sleep suddenly goes out again, well, then you know, but, but otherwise there's no reason not to do it. Mm, okay. Does it that help you, John? Yeah, super. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thanks. Have a good day. Cheers. So, yeah, Alison, yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's great advice. Mm. That's great advice for people that are struggling mm. with, with their devices before falling asleep. Yeah, I think, it, you know, again, it's with sleep. Everyone goes, you must never take a sleeping tablet. You must never use a device. You must, there's no such thing as never. Mm. I mean, moderation, that's that's what it's about. But, I mean, if, you, if you're an insomniac, then don't use devices before you go to sleep. It's going to make it worse. Mm. So, yeah, back to torture. Yep. So the partial sleep deprivation. So all you need to do is have a siren every five minutes. Um, oh, so people actually did that too. Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh yeah. oh yeah. And the thing, I mean, that's easy to put in. Nobody needs to do that. You know what I'm saying? You can just have it happening and the entire prison is basically sleep deprived and sure. much more likely to do what you want them to do. Um, so it's about getting that confession. And the thing about sleep deprivation is psychologically people are a total mess. Physically, nothing wrong. So there's absolutely nothing wrong. So the thing is, as soon as you let somebody sleep, there's no evidence of, of what, what happened. And that's the thing about torture. If you, if you're going to, and I'm not, please don't anybody say that I was promoting torture here. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to torture somebody to get a confession or to get them to do something, you want a situation where there's no evidence because that's the whole point. It's a secret thing. Torture is a secret thing. No one must, no one must know. So it was used very effectively. I mean, in the Korean War, we know it was used and it was, it's been used in all wars because it was easy. It's easy to do, easy to solve and, and gets results. And, and I think what was so eye-opening for me when I heard that talk of yours was the fact that there were doctors involved. It never crossed my yep. mind that doctors have to be part of torture regimes because yes, they, they need to keep those patients those patients, those people alive. Alive, yes. So well, the, the point about torture is it doesn't help if you kill somebody. Mm. So the the idea of of the doctor was that you the doctor is there to make sure that they live. Yeah. And you get the confession yeah. or whatever it is that you want yeah. out of them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is hectic. And the other thing that I find quite torturous, Alison, is like you know when you've been admitted into hospital, and they're up at four o'clock in the morning with yep. their trolleys, yep. coming to take your vitals, like. That is just not on. No, it's not. I mean, the, the sleep in hospitals is awful. It, it just is. is. I mean, and I remember when I was admitted, mm. I just, I couldn't understand. I'm meant to be here. I'm meant to be resting. I'm meant to be recuperating. And instead, blood pressure check at four o'clock and then your tablets and then this and then that. Mm. We need to change that. Well, what, what, what's bizarre about sleep is that sleep takes second place everywhere, whether it's working. So, I mean, if you look at the shifts that some people are working as yeah. well. So sleep as a, as a very core biological function takes second place to economic stuff. Okay. So the fact that the nurses change shifts at seven 
and everything has to be done before seven is the reason why all of that stuff happens. Before seven, right? It's got nothing to do with the natural sleep process. So if we actually said, if we instead of going, because they, they change shift at seven and the labor unions have decided that they will change shift at seven, we have to do everything before seven. Instead of that, instead of that, if we said actually patients need their sleep, so let's look at maintaining the sleep first, then change the shifts. Shifts would change at nine. Yeah, and I think we'd have a happier, much happier um, and team uh, and patients as yeah. well. And you know they've done that for some schools. So really? because of this whole four fifteen-year-old boy thing and and the delayed sleep phase syndrome, there've been a number of studies where they've taken in the U.S. where they've taken entire schools and moved the school starting date time until nine o'clock. So every kid has come to school later, and they've also left school later. Mm. But they found within a term, marks were going up, behavior improved. You know, everything just improved because now this was the right kind of time zone for these teenagers. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, that's yeah, something for us to consider. That's yeah. very fascinating. And I find the same thing as well. I mean, when I'm Minister of Health one day, and I promise you it's going to happen, um, the shift that doctors work, I just I, mm. the, the whole thing of being on call for 36 hours or longer does not make sense to me, Alison. That's I think ridiculous. doctors need to work 12-hour shifts like everyone else. Yep, you they know? do. Yeah. There's no I, reason why they can't work 12-hour shifts. Well, the thing about shift work, is, is as follows, because I've done quite a bit of work, as you can imagine, <laughs> advising people, companies on, on sleep and fatigue and shift work and things like that. So the, the thing about shift, shifts is that um, the reason why people tend to work long shifts and why people prefer long shifts, companies prefer long shifts because you need fewer workers. Okay, think about it. If you have 24 hours that you need to keep a company running and you run 12-hour shifts, you need two sets of workers. The minute you go down to eight-hour shifts, you need three sets of workers. Uh, you need to increase your workforce to supply those third, mm. that third group of workers. So the same thing happens with doctors. There is no reason why doctors are working 36 hours. Absolutely no reason at all. It's against all biological kind of systems. We hear all the time about doctors who drive home and have accidents on the all way home. All the time and lose their lives. Yeah. And in fact, there was a study done by an ex-Vitsi who's at Brigham Women's Hospital in, in, in Boston. And she looked at, cause this whole thing about doctors and errors, you know, if they, mm. if they she found the errors did not happen on shift. The errors happened after the shift. Mm. Now the thing that's interesting is that the way that the employers look at that, they go, that's not our problem. Mm. Okay, so what happens once you leave our premises is not our problem. So the fact that the single biggest error that doctors make when they are tired and they are they're working in a hospital and they then drive home is that they have car accidents is not the fault of the hospital. That's what they claim. And that's bizarre. I mean, that's just crazy. Like we can do whatever we like to you at work. We don't offer you sleeping facilities. So it's not like you can sleep before you go home either. Mm. That's your problem. I sleep in my car. And it's actually not the doctor's problem because this has been inflicted upon them. Yeah. So I've just written an article for Sleep Matters, which is a, 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 doc, a doctor newsletter, which is about is, is shift work kind of legalized torture? Is, is that basically what it is? I so, think it is. So continuing on from our discussion about sleep deprivation and mm. torture, we know there is very good evidence that if you work nights, you are never going to get sufficient sleep ever. During the day, because your circadian rhythms are out of whack, the whole world is working, um, it's too hot. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're a diamond, if you work at a diamond mine in Messina and you go home and you sleep at night, you sleep during the day, you're not going home to a luxurious air-conditioned room. What are the temperatures in Messina at lunchtime? They're like 40 degrees. Are you kidding me? No one can sleep in that temperature. No one can sleep, yeah. So does the company provide air conditioners for all of its workers to be able to sleep properly so they can come out at night? Absolutely not. That's not how this works. So this works, the way that that work works here in South Africa is if you fall asleep at work three times, you can be fired. There is, there is no obligation to send you for a sleep study to see if you have sleep apnea or any sleep disorder. There, it's, it's not considered a medical disorder at all. It's considered negligence. It's your job to be properly prepared to come and work. Mm. Now, if you're in some in, in, in industries and you come into work and you are too sleepy, and you say, I am too sleepy to work. That's a disciplinary hearing. And you, and, and all you're trying your to do is to protect your, your, your fellow employees and whoever else needs your Absolutely. services. And if you're driving a train or a bus or an aeroplane, all of us who are traveling in the train, the bus or an aeroplane want you properly slept. That's what we want because we know that if you haven't slept properly, that your, the errors that you make rise. And, you know, the difference between an error and an accident is just wrong place, wrong time. That's that's the only difference. That is. It's an error you make at the wrong time. So 
you know, we've had, there's multiple, every time there's a bus accident at Beaufort West, I wake up in the morning and there's another bus accident, I go, I know exactly why that happened. Because it happens at two o'clock in the morning when every nerve in your body is screaming to be asleep. The whole bus is sleeping, Alison. The whole bus is sleeping. You are the only person awake. awake. And then uh, understand is that they don't have single single vehicle accidents. They ac- they have an accident with another vehicle. That person driving that vehicle is just as sleepy. And yet we go, it's terrible, the drivers, blah, 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 blah. It's not the drivers. The drivers are trying to make a living. But they put on these schedules which are which are bizarre. And they're not no one so getting back to the beginning of this conversation, no one looks at the biology and says, Right, here's how people work. Let's work around that and make work work around the people, how the how the body's working. Not the other way around and say, Here's how we want the company to work and you must just fit in with that. Yeah, well that's you've made some very, very valid points. Uh, there's a question from Katlejo and she wants to know about sleep paralysis. You know, what's happening to your body yeah. when you get into sleep paralysis? Oh, that's a scary thing to happen. No, no, it happens to me yeah. as a child. I must say it happened to me yeah. quite a lot and it only stopped, um, in my adulthood. Yeah. Like after my, after my first yeah. child was born. But yeah. before I experienced it a lot. Yeah. And it's really scary. So it happens when you wake up. Yeah. Um, just to explain to people, when you wake up at night and you are awake, your brain is awake, but you can't move a muscle. Mm. And, all those stories of people being buried alive all came from this experience of people thinking that people are going to think I'm dead because I can't respond and I look like I'm dead. But um, so what happens is it's, it's usually when you wake up out of REM sleep. So during REM sleep, we mentioned that you have all your vivid, bizarre dreams, mm. but you're also paralyzed during REM sleep. So oh. the rest of sleep, you are relaxed. But during REM sleep, you're paralyzed. It's an active process. So there's a little center in your brain that when you go into REM sleep, paralyzes your whole body, which is a good thing because otherwise you'd be acting out your dreams. Oh, right? I see, like so flailing about and really, kicking and everything really good else. Thing. Okay. So there actually is a sleep disorder called REM behavior disorder where that little center doesn't work and people do get up and act out their dreams and they mm. hurt themselves. So we have people, you know, men jumping out of bed, playing rugby, tackling the chest of drawers and fracturing their collarbones and, you know, crazy stuff like that. So... It's a good idea to be to be paralyzed during REM sleep. When you wake up out of REM sleep, you have to switch off about four or five centers, okay, all at the same time. And sleep paralysis happens when you just mistime the 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 paralysis one. And so the paralysis continues and I know it feels like the longest period of your entire life, but it's, it's usually a about nightmare. it's about ten seconds or fifteen seconds. But it feels like forever. And people who have it often usually come up with a Get to know it, and then it stops being so 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 scary, and they get a plan. And usually, the plan is the little finger. You just concentrate on the little finger and get it to twitch. And as soon as you can get something to twitch, the whole thing breaks. I used to talk to myself. I say to myself, "It's only a dream. Get up, move." You know, it's always it is. It's about moving, and, yeah. you, and you've just got to kind of push the movement thing. And then, you know, if if your brain is going to move, it has to switch off that paralysis. Okay. So it kind of. Gets it, gets it going. That's yeah. fascinating. And someone else um, has sent in a message and she says that she sleeps 10 hours a night and she wants to know if there's anything wrong with her. She wakes up refreshed, you know, after her mm. 10 hours. Is there anything wrong with that? Nope. Nope. There's nothing. I mean, the, the, the whole business about hours of sleep is that if you ask 10,000 people, the average is going to be seven to eight hours, but it's one of those bell-shaped curves. So there's so nothing on, like too much sleep. No. Well, on the one side of that bell-shaped curve, there's you at three to four hours. Yeah. On the other side, there are people who need nine and ten hours oh, and are perfectly good. normal. But ten hours for what? Need nine or ten hours. I don't know. You know, all <laughs> I'm saying is that they that takes their brain ten hours to get what it takes your brain three or four hours to get. I don't know. That's. That's the mystery of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, the shift work is something that's really important to me. I promise you, I, even now, just, just thinking about what you've, what you've been saying and the bus accidents and all these other things that happen, you know, in the evening, it's, it's hectic stuff. And, but what would we need to do to change the laws around, around shift work? Well, the problem with shift work is, and is that it's not just about the biology, right? Yeah. So we can bleat as much as we like. It's mm. about economics mm. and the, the money is always going to win. And, you know, whenever I've been asked to to look, go to a company to say, look, would you come and look at our shifts and, and look at And I say, I'm not going to look at the shifts, okay, because the shifts are set. You have set the shifts. The unions have set the shifts. I'm not going to change that. What we need to look at is how you manage this better. Okay, so how do you how do you make it more user friendly to to do those shifts? Because there's no such thing as the perfect shift, mm. it just isn't. But how do you do that? So a little sensitivity about the fact that you have people who are not designed to work these hours. 
they just aren't. So a little sensitivity in that if you if you can, if you if you have somebody who is so exhausted that they cannot do the job, allow them to sleep for 20 minutes because after that they can do the job. Mm. And that's and that's something that really you brought can. up. You brought up. I, I mean, I tweeted that thing that you said that if you're studying, um, you know, study for about two hours, take a twenty minute nap, and study again. But this whole thing of cross nighting, we call it. We or I used to call it cross nighting in hours of varsity. Mm. We just study the whole night, and the next morning yeah. you can't remember anything. You know. No. Well, the the problem is that you you get less and less efficient as you go through the night. So you're much more efficient. If you sleep. So there's a 1924 study. I mean, it's 1924. It's fabulous where they took people and they gave them a task and then they either let them sleep for half an hour or stay awake for half an hour. Right. Mm -hmm. And then an hour and two hours and four hours. And every single time, even on the 30 minute nap, the people who slept remembered more than the people who stayed awake for that half hour. Now, I mean, there are lots of things wrong with that study. I mean, there just are. But it's a fascinating insight into how you should be functioning if you want to remember stuff. If we go with you consolidate your memories at night, then you've got to be sleeping. Then you need to learn stuff and sleep on it and learn stuff and sleep on it. So Michelangelo was, I think, or Leonardo da Vinci, I can never remember which one, was the guy who used to sleep half an hour every three hours, I think, 24 hours a day. And you kind of go with that. That's possibly a good way to sleep because you you kind of almost as though after three hours you have your half hour nap mm. and then you're done and you can start fresh mm. almost. Like and I'm sure there are many people who get to the end of the day and you go, my head is just full of stuff that yeah. happened today. And and kind of you would get rid of that a bit. Mm. So by by taking of, a little 30-minute yeah, nap, like yeah, a power nap almost. Yeah, yeah. But then again, not everybody can power nap. Okay. Right? So I can't. Uh, I really feel I should, as a sleep expert, be able to do that. But mm. no, I just can't. Some people can. And when I do talks and ask, it's a minority of people who can actually power nap. Really? Mm. I thought it was like, you know, everybody can do it. You just have to have the time mm. and the inclination. No. And what about, um, I mean, I have a friend who takes naps all throughout the day. I mean, he's a, he's a medical doctor, does lots of research, really smart guy. But like odd hours, he'll take a nap and he can't function if he hasn't taken that nap. Like he mm. cannot function. Yeah. Well, I mean, people who can't, who, who feel that sleepy during the day, we, we, we need to look at basically how they, how that, what's going on at night. And I mean, the big trigger is that if you wake up in the morning and you feel like you have not slept, even if eight hours have passed, even if the normal kind of, but you wake up feeling as though you're still sleepy, then something is going on at night. And you may not know it, but that's why we have sleep laboratories and we put you in a sleep lab and we go record what's happening to this person because something is going on. And it's usually sleep apnea or it's leg movements or something is happening during the night that unless you have a bed partner and you sleep very close together, you wouldn't notice. Mm. Um, and something's going on to fragment that sleep so that the quality of the sleep isn't there. And, and so that's, and that's the other, so there's the insomnias where you don't get enough hours. And then there's the hypersomnias where you get enough hours, but the hours just aren't good. They're just bad, mm. bad quality sleep. And so there we would look for what is going on and, and treat that because that's will solve the kind of sleepiness during the day. And then the sleep lab, I mean, so if I was to come through to the sleep lab, um, what would I expect? I mean, I, am I strapped to all these machines? Oh, yeah. And is the environment the conducive for sleep? Like, what is it like? Well, it's not. I mean, it's not conducive to sleep because, I mean, mo- and, and we don't send insomniacs to the sleep lab. I mean, there's, there's often no reason because one of two things happen. Either we, I mean, we put electrodes on your head because we want to monitor your brain waves. You have something under your nose to monitor your breathing pattern under your chin. We have bands around your chest. You have a blue light, red light on your finger for the oximeter. You have things on your legs. And so there's lots of electrodes and stuff. And you're in a hospital in a strange place. Mm. So two things happen with an insomniac. They either don't sleep at all. So. That's a waste of 6000 bucks because... That's how much it costs for an assessment. Yeah, yeah, if you're going to go into a hospital for an assessment, that's how much it's going to cost you. Um, or secondly, they sleep fantastically because they get into bed and they go, well, this is a waste of time. I'm never going to sleep here. And they stop trying and the brain goes, fabulous, now I can sleep. <laughs> okay. So they sleep very well and then they come out of there going, well, that wasn't representative of my sleep at all. Um, so we're not looking for how long you sleep for. We're not looking for the t- the sleep stages at all. That's not the function of the sleep lab. Mm. The sleep lab is really to look for what is going on in your sleep that nobody else can look at. Mm. So it's an insight into what's happening during sleep. It's an, so we look for the, the people we send to the sleep lab are those people who sleep too much. Okay. So they sleep eight hours and that's primarily the sleep apnea. So they sleep too much. They sleep eight hours, wake up feeling like they're hit by a bus. 
So and they, they can't figure out why. And they can't figure out why. They're falling asleep at work all the time and they're desperate to get some response to that. Unfortunately, it's usually males. And when they go to doctors, they usually blame it on work stress or something like that. So they end up on, with tonics, trying to make them feel better when actually it's about sleep apnea. And, and, and sleep apnea being? This, uh, they snore and they stop breathing at night. Okay. So... You know, whenever you talk to people about stop breathing, they go, rubbish, I'd be dead. And I go, yeah, you would be if your brain didn't wake you up all the time because that's how it works. It's an anatomical thing where the, the back of the throat collapses in on itself. And when that happens, the brain wakes you up. And that's a great idea in the middle of the night because it keeps you alive. Yeah. But if you do that a 100 times a night, when you wake up the next morning, you feel like hell. And is, is sleep apnea associated with being um, overweight? Yep. Okay, so obesity Number plays one. a role. Abdominal obesity or obesity in general? Well, it's, it's, it's male pattern obesity because okay. what happens with male pattern obesity, I mean, men put on weight between the chin and the groin, yeah. right? And so it's, it's around the neck. Mm. So really the biggest, um, um, predictor for, for sleep apnea is first of all, you have to snore, right? But secondly, if you have a neck circumference that's more than 43 centimeters, big predictor. So it's about laying down weight around the throat area. Okay. okay. And if you lay down weight there, then you narrow the throat. And then there's a venturi effect that happens. Mm. That if you, if the air is moving very quickly through the throat, then the pressure drops and the throat, the throat collapses. Okay. In on itself. Okay. So we have one more caller before we go. Um, hi, Michael. How are you? Very well. A very fascinating topic today. Thank you. Um, I am curious about restless leg syndrome. Mm. Uh, Is that got to do with um, sleep disorder as well? Yep, no, it's one of the sleep disorders. Okay. Okay. Could you possibly describe what it is? Because I think I might have it, but I'm not sure. Okay, Michael, thanks for the question. Okay. I'll listen on the radio. Fantastic. No problem. Okay, so restless legs is officially my favorite sleep disorder. Okay. Because it's what I did my PhD on. <laughs> oh, great. Fantastic. <laughs> so what restless legs is, is in the evening, um, there's, it's an, it's an urge to move the legs. So, and the reason why people are not sure if they have it or not is because the sensation everybody gets is kind of unique to them. So it's not the same as pins and needles. It's not the same as numbness. People have described it, and I don't have it, so I can't give you my description, but people have described it like ants running up and down their bones, Coca-Cola in their veins, this pulling, stretching feeling in the muscles. So it's a, it's a strange sensation. But what is the restless legs comes from it? There's an urge to move that you mm. have to move your legs. You can't just sit and ignore the sensation. So people with restless legs get up and start walking around. If they walk around, so then the sensation goes away. But as soon as they stop walking around, it comes it back. It comes back. Okay. So it's like this torture. It literally is like a, like a thing of torture. So the, the, the qualifying thing to diagnose restless legs, you have to have an urge to move as often associated with this uncomfortable sensation. The sensation has to go away if you walk, if you move around. Mm -hmm. It happens, it's worse at night and it's worse at rest. Okay. So those are the four diagnostic kind of criteria. That's great. No, that's, that's good to know. And so, Alison, we've come to the end of the show. You've been fantastic. I think what we'll do, we'll put your um, details out there, but just where can people find you if they're looking for you? Twitter? Yep. Well, yeah. You know, I'm terrible at Twitter. Well, after today, you're going to be very good. So your, your handle is at Dr. ABZZZ. So it's at Dr. ABZZZ. And we'll put out her details on our Cliff Central um, um, website and also on the um, Twitter handle. But yeah, Alison, it's been fantastic having you in studio and um, just a riveting, riveting subject. Pleasure. Health Hour on CliffCentral.com.